recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, June 14th. I'm sorry, June 24th, 2015. And we will be presenting the fifth segment of our presentation and commentary on positive Christianity in the Third Reich. First, a personal note concerning my ministry and and my travels. Melissa and I are now back in Blue Ridge, Georgia, on on, on what we pray is the final stop on a long four-week journey. I know that a lot of our listeners have been praying for um, our safe passage and for our continued um, safe travels with the van that that I've owned for three and a half years now and, and that we started this journey on. We made it to Blue Ridge, Georgia, but our van did not. The transmission, which had... It, it was actually slipping a little from first gear to second gear before we left on our trip, and that was noted to us by um, by, by the mechanics that we had last work on the van. Well, well um, the van did not make it to Blue Ridge while we did. Uh, I'm informed by Melissa today is June 26, 2015, so I don't know what calendar I was looking at when I wrote the notes to this program. Our van did not make it to Blue Ridge, Georgia, and the van will not make it to Florida. It, it's gone, and, and we were forced in Bristol to either um, put several thousand dollars into repairs or to trade it in, and we traded it in, and, and that's all I'll say about that. But we're here safely, and we praise Yahweh our God for that. We will hopefully be home in the middle of next week back in Panama City. This is part five in our series of presentations of Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. And the second half of his booklet is titled The Christian Foundations of National Socialism. In this portion of his book, Fabricius discusses and explains the national socialist ideas, or I should say, concepts of kinship with God, the relationship of God and folk, the practice of neighborly love, and national corruption and redemption. And as identity Christians should all know, the Old Testament itself is a book relating the national corruption and redemption of the children of Israel, none of whom are Jews. We have already presented the first part of Fabricius's booklet's second half, which was concerning kinship with God and dominion over the world. And now we shall present his second part, at least most of his second part, which details the national socialist perspective on the Christian concept of brotherly love. Discussing what Fabricius said about kinship with God and dominion over the world. One important item to note 
was his attitude towards the British Empire. Fabricius had seen the British Empire as something which had accompanied British Christianity rather than being opposed to British Christianity. He also professed that Britain's Christianity, and especially the Methodist Christians, saved Britain from suffering in the revolutions that Christian France and Germany had suffered near the turn of the 19th century. Fabricius's attitude also demonstrated that National Socialists were not contrary to British world dominion. Instead, it can be seen throughout the pages of Mein Kampf and in many of his speeches that Adolf Hitler had greatly respected the British Empire and that he rightfully felt a strong bond of kinship with the English people. In Mein Kampf, Hitler said such things as, I as a German, and we see this in volume 2, chapter 14 of Mein Kampf, I as a German would far rather see India under British domination than under that of any other nation. Here is a short citation from an article which we have posted at the Mein Kampf Project for quite some time entitled, Dirty Little Secrets of World War II, The Hidden Awkward Origins of World War II. And this article was evidently written by Jason Collette on September 6th, 2010, or almost five years ago. And Jason said, Britain and France declared war on Germany, not the other way around. Hitler wanted peace with Britain, as the generals, as the German generals admitted, and he quotes the British historian Basil Liddell Hart and his book, The Other Side of the Hill, which was written in 1948. As the German generals admitted with regard to the so-called halt order at Dunkirk, where Hitler had the opportunity to capture the entire British army, but chose not to. Liddell Hart, one of Britain's most respected military historians, quotes the German general von Blumentritt with regard to this halt order. And astonished us, as the German general speaking, he then astonished us by speaking with admiration of the British Empire, of the necessity for its existence, and of the civilization that Britain had brought into the world. He remarked with a shrug of the shoulders that the creation of its empire had been achieved by means that were often harsh, but where there is planing meaning planing of wood, there are shavings flying. He compared the British Empire with the Catholic Church, saying they were both essential elements of stability in the world. He said that all he wanted from Britain was that she should acknowledge Germany's position on the continent. The return of Germany's colonies would be desirable, meaning the colonies which Germany had lost in Africa and elsewhere, at the end of World War II. The return of Germany, I'm sorry, at the end of World War I, the Great War. The return of Germany's colonies would be desirable but not essential, and he would even offer to support Britain with troops if she should be involved in difficulties 
anywhere. And that's quoted from page 200 of Basil Liddell Hart's The Other Side of the Hill. As we have already seen here from Fabricius, the National Socialists believed that the German people rightfully deserved a respectable place among the powerful nations of the world, along with its own right of self-determination and the right to assure its own survival. It was Germany which had been the victim of international interests in the Great War, which was the First World War. And Germany was being looted and pillaged in its aftermath with both the oppression at Versailles and the decadence and the Jewish looting of Germany, which occurred in the Weimar period. Without doubt, Germany was once again the victim in the Second World War. Also, without doubt, Hitler and National Socialist Germany never had any desire to conquer the world. Rather, it is the Jews themselves who invented that propaganda, who have actually sought and who have succeeded in taking over the world to this very day. Because Hitler lost, the world now suffers under Jewish supremacy. Here, we shall continue with the second half of Fabricius' booklet and his description of National Socialist Christianity, which is love for one's neighbor. And his first point is titled Love, Justice, Honor. And Fabricius proceeds by stating, out of kinship with God, which was the title of his last portion of this work, out of kinship with God arises love for one's neighbor. Last week, in presenting Fabricius's discussion of kinship with God, we established that from the Christian viewpoint, one's neighbor is one who is near to you, not in geography, but in relationship. That while the Greek word, placeion, indicated only one who is near to you, there were other Greek words translated neighbor in the New Testament, which could only be interpreted as one who is near to you in geography, geographically, in proximity of location. But this word placeion has a different meaning and only means one who is near to you without distinguishing whether proximity or relationship is meant. However, the Hebrew word in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 18 of chapter 19, the Hebrew word is from a root Hebrew verb, which means to tend or to graze a flock. And one's neighbor is someone who was raised and nurtured with you. And that is the original meaning of the Hebrew word. Therefore, one's neighbor can only refer to one's tribesmen, one of one's own community. One's neighbor cannot be a wolf who has been introduced to the sheepfold. And we should bear those meanings in mind whenever we see that word neighbor 
in the Christian New Testament. Out of kinship with God arises love for one's neighbor. The children of the Father are united in brotherly love in one great holy family. The one Holy Spirit streaming from the superhuman life of the Godhead into their hearts creates a common spirit of unity and makes them one, so that finally the many are as of one heart and one soul. Thus, love for one's neighbor is an indispensable feature of the real Christian mind. In dominion over the world, which, as was said before, is the immediate effect of kinship with God, love for one's neighbor comes first as the greatest of all virtues. In it, the working of the divine spirit is made manifest in secular life. On asking ourselves the question, what is love for one's neighbor? We shall find that in substance, it is the community spirit, the devotion of the one to the other and to society. In this way are united sympathy, friendliness, warm-heartedness, and deep joy in sharing life in common. In this connection, too, we find a feeling of spontaneous goodwill, the urge of inner conviction without any outward pressure of the ego towards the common spirit and fellow creatures for the promotion of the welfare of the community and all within it. And to this must be added the trust one has in the other and which the individual has in the community and the community in the individual. This creates the firm conviction of being able to hold fast together at all costs, even if the one knows little about the others. And then there is fidelity, which through all the changes of time binds the one closely to the other. This universal conception of love for one's neighbor assumes at the same time, the character of service in the Christian community. As we are told in the New Testament, he will be the chief who is servant to all. And Fabricius is citing Matthew chapter 20, verse 27, and the words of Christ where he is recorded as saying, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. And he continues, hence all these forged together, Sympathy, goodwill, trust, service form the substance of love for snare. This, however, does not exhaust itself in merely adopting a friendly frame of mind. It expresses itself in kind words and, above all, in helpful acts. But neither is help only extended to the inner life. It comprises everything that is human. Most particularly, however, it is is it directed to the physical needs of those bound by the ties of brotherhood? Ever since early Christian days, it has been customary amongst Christians to regard it as a sacred duty, indeed as a service to God, to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick, to go to the prisoners, to shelter the stranger. And here, Fabricius is citing the model for Christian behavior which Christ had provided in Matthew chapter 25, where he says from verse 35, speaking of the sheep, for I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course, the sheep asked Christ, how did we do those things to you? And he informed them that whoever would do any of that to the least of his people were doing it to him. It must be kept in mind that the concept of community in the New Testament was a racial idea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul warned the Christians at Corinth not to commit fornication as their fathers had done. And in one day, when they committed fornication, 24,000 of them had fallen in punishment from God. That is a reference to the events depicted in Numbers chapter 25, where the sons of Israel had joined themselves in whoredom or in fornication to the daughters of Moab, as the Jude defines fornication. Fornication is the pursuit of strange or different flesh. Likewise, to Adolf Hitler, the community was based on blood and race. In volume two, chapter two of Mein Kampf, Hitler had written, but it is almost inconceivable how such a mistake could be made as to think that a nigger or a Chinaman will become a German because he has learned the German language and is willing to speak German for the future and even to cast his vote for a German political party. Our bourgeois nationalists could never clearly see that such a process of Germanization is in reality de-Germanization. For even if all the outstanding and visible differences between the various peoples could be bridged over and finally wiped out by the use of a common language, that would produce a process of bastardization, which in this case would not signify Germanization, but the annihilation of the German element. In the course of history, it has happened only too often that a conquering race succeeded by external force in compelling the people whom they subjected to speak the tongue of the conqueror, and that after a thousand years, their language was spoken by another people, and that thus, the conqueror finally turned out to be the conquered. And the proof of that is in India, it's in Mexico, it's in Brazil, it's in China. Adolf Hitler was right, even though he himself was not aware that Christ came for the lost sheep and not so that wolves could somehow be made into sheep. To continue with Caius Fabricius, as the queen of all virtues, which go to form the life of a community, Love for one's neighbor holds a higher place than the two other basic principles, which together with it make the foundations of human society, namely honor and justice. Honor, wherein is expressed the importance of the individual in his individuality for society and justice, wherein is emphasized the equality of all individuals in the community spirit are assumed beforehand and recognized to be elementary principles in Christian community life. But both are surpassed by the love that encircles the individually different 
as well as the universally similar, and which get, in other words, people of the same race, and which gives the individual his honor and all the others justice, but which at the same time is higher than honor and justice. For to take honor for himself isolates the individual and makes him harsh towards the community spirit. Justice taken by itself despises the individual and absorbs him in the common spirit, but love sets the individual within his proper limits by taking his place and serving the community with his own special powers, and gives the principle of justice too a subordinate position by not merely acting on the principle of requital, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and in repaying good with good and evil with evil. But it bestows the good from its divine heights without expecting anything in return, forgiving even the evil it has suffered in order that injustice may not disturb or even destroy brotherly unity. This is the precise concept expressed in Leviticus chapter 19 where we read the words, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. However, with this one important point, which should not be missed, and that is within the context of the passage, the meaning of the word neighbor must be limited to those of the children of thy people, to those of one's own race and blood. Hitler's concept of a national community limited to blood and race is therefore congruent to the biblical concept of community because God, from Old Testament to New, does not change. Christ had instructed his apostles, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 9, that if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Therefore, when Christians sacrifice their own interests for the common good of their community, and when they devote their lives to their brethren, as Christ had devoted his life for his brethren, they have an eternal reward in heaven. The holy Christian concept of devotion of one's own life to the interest of one's community is the first great principle by which we see that National Socialism sought to establish a Christian nation, a nation founded upon positive Christianity. From 1 John chapter 3, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you today when Christians to profess to love only their own Christian brethren. Those of their own race, the world indeed hates them. And John continues, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. 
Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In the values espoused by Jewish materialism, as well as the supposed secular, but in reality, the Jewish philosophy of Nietzsche, we find that the interests of the individual are promoted and that man, acting in his own interests, comes to the mistaken belief that he can somehow become his own God. In the mind of the Jew, men are pitted against one another to compete with one another for material rewards. This is absolutely contrary to the mind of Christ as well as to the values of the Aryan spirit, which the mind of Christ fully reflects. On the other hand, the mind of Nietzsche is the spirit of the Jew in which the man is demoted to the status of an animal, seeking his own interests against those of the community. Animalistic self-interest is contrary to Christianity and it is also contrary to national socialism. But the Jew would have everybody engaged in capitalism and animalistic self-interest, materialism, which is the inevitable result of humanism. National socialism, to continue with Fabricius, National Socialism, a movement in substance and name with its center of gravity in society, finds itself precisely at this point in close contact with the Christian religion. Not only may we speak of an interconnection, there is more than that. For in this sphere, National Socialism actually coincides with Christianity. It is itself practical Christianity a national realization of love for one's neighbor, love for somebody of one's own flock, the common, inter- the common interest before the self-interest, as it is called in point 24 of the party program, and in the speeches of the Fuhrer and his coadjutors as well, as in the innumerable pronouncements of the party, not only do these words echo forth, but there was a call for devotion to the national community, for comradeship, for sacrifice, for trust and fidelity, and above all, for service. Because if you don't put your Christian professions of love into action, faith without works is dead. Expressions such as these are not vain words. They are backed by deeds, and by deeds of a greatness never before experienced in such a manner in the history of nations, or indeed in the history of brotherly love. The National Socialistic Movement has succeeded in restoring to order and discipline a people standing on the brink of universal deterioration and divided into hostile classes by a wild and lawless propaganda of hate. It has transformed, moreover, deep-seated distrust into unconditional trust, infidelity into fidelity, discord into concord, strife into peace, 
and after an era in which each wished to be master and asserted his own rights. And here, Fabricius is echoing the results of the philosophy of Nietzsche as well as the ideals of the Jew, which were prominent in German thinking throughout the Weimar period. And he continues by saying, and more, National Socialism has once again made service, obedience, and submission honorable things. In effecting, this legal measures have been extensively employed and appeal made to the honor of the whole folk without, however, detracting in any way from the devoted surrender of the individual to the whole as a ruling power. Thus, Christianity and National Socialism are one and the same in love for one's neighbor, in that they are insolubly, insolubly united for all time and can never be parted. The Christian message, as the Fuhrer has expressly stated, has the special task of making the churches use their moral powers to influence the sick, which means that from the gospel message there springs the delicate and spiritual growth of brotherly love, namely the life of kinship with God, and spreads all its spiritual riches over the life of the folk. National Socialism, again, as a folk movement, has the task of making this inner growth a vigorous influence in the life of the nation of a character different to that of Christian love, which is realized in National Socialism, are various theories and practices that have come down to us from the ages of reason, romanticism, and techniques, or, or the Renaissance, right? Also such that emphasize their wish to be Germanic and offer their theories to the Roman folk as something of particular value. There are, it is true, among modern theoreticians and practitioners of social life, particularly some years ago, those who recommend Christian love for one's neighbor as the greatest of all virtues for curing the ills of society. But since the liberalism of the age of reason, repeated objections have been raised against the love for one's neighbor. Three and Fabricius puts that in quotes, because modern man really isn't free at all. Free, modern man thinks that the service and devotion which Christian love entails, similar to humility and piety, is something degrading, undignified, insulting, sometimes injurious to man's pride, and reducing him to the status of a slave. And to strengthen the argument, reference is preferably made to the well-known words of the Sermon on the Mount, according to which he who is smitten on the, on the one cheek ought to turn the other also. Marxism is enthusiastic in denouncing Christian love as slavish happiness and preaches hatred of the capitalistic class because it robs the proletarian of his honor and freedom. And Hitler was 
absolutely against class warfare as being divisive to the different necessary branches of the nation. Fabricius continues, similarly too, some of those proclaiming national honor and liberty may occasionally be heard opposing the misunderstood love for one's neighbor. But such a comparison does not conform to our Christian and at the same time national socialistic point of view. Most assuredly, are liberty and honor high values in our eyes. And it is our firm conviction that a people in days of degradation, degradation and oppression must never tire of fighting for its honor and liberty, just as it is a duty to challenge any interference with honor and freedom in the life of every free and honorable person. But we know, on the other hand, that service and devotion to the community do not exclude liberty and honor, but include them. And we know, too, the meaning of the words, whosoever smiteth the other to him the other also. According to the context of the amount, it simply means that the love which gives and forgives, not the justice which repays, is the mainstay of moral life. For this love, as the Sermon on the Mount shows, is no slavish happiness, but is a victorious virtue dominating the world, and it should dominate the Christian world. For it belongs to the perfection which makes the children of God like their father, the Lord of the world, who makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, that through forgiving love, the children of God do not degrade themselves, but are raised instead to God on high, is seen in the prayer uttered by all Christians. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And we will have a, um, a long digression here because this, is, this, this concept of Christian morality and why Christian morality is absolutely necessary to the sustenance of our race is the biggest sticking point that I've ever had in discussions with pagans and humanists. They just can't handle Christian morality. And if we understand, the primary reason, in my experience, for the rejection of Christianity amongst pagans and humanists is a moral issue then perhaps we can realize the real problem pagans and humanists have with Christianity. Of course, the Jew had contrived many devices by which to undermine Christian morality and to undermine Christianity itself. The biggest shame is that the pagans and the secular humanists who today call themselves white nationalists do not understand that when they seek themselves, when they themselves seek to degrade or undermine Christianity and the need for Christian morals, they are actually doing the handiwork of the Jew. Considering the recognition of the need for Christian morality to lead to enslavement, the pagan 
or secular white nationalist is actually working against the interests of fellow whites. And therefore, he is not a white nationalist at all because he actually makes himself a slave to the Jew, the promoter of immorality everywhere. There are many places to go in order to demonstrate this, and we shall only choose one. Adolf Hitler, in Volume 1, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, spoke of his experience with social democrats who were the progressives of the time, and he said of them that everything was disparaged, the nation, because it was held to be an invention of the capitalist class. And he made a parenthetical statement, how often I had to listen to that phrase. The fatherland, meaning that the social democrats were disparaging all of these things. They were disparaging the nation. They were disparaging the fatherland. The fatherland, because it was held to be an instrument in the hands of the bourgeois for the exploitation of the working masses. The authority of the law they were disparaging because that was a means of holding down the proletariat. Listen to this, because today in the United States, the Jewish-controlled liberal media is claiming that certain laws are a means of holding down the nigger. Our laws are unfair because so many niggers violate them and get caught. So the things that these social democrats, that the Jews in Germany were using the social democratic party to do to disparage the nation, to disparage the fatherland, to disparage the authority of the white man's law or the German's law at this time, are happening here in America and they've been happening for 60 years. And today in the media, the liberals and the Jews are screaming that our laws are unfair to niggers. So it, it must be okay to shoplift. And they want to, they want to cancel all the laws against shoplifting because niggers always shoplift. And that was going on in Germany and Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler wrote about it 90 years ago. The authority of the law was being disparaged because that was a means of holding down the proletariat. Religion was being disparaged, Hitler says, as a means of doping the people so as to exploit them afterwards. Actually, the Jews wanted to destroy religion so that they could exploit the people. And look at America today. And morality was being disparaged, as Hitler writes, as a badge of stupid and sheepish docility. And Hitler said there was nothing that they did not drag in the mud. That pagans and humanists had despised Christian morality right from the beginning is evident from the beginning of the history of the rise of humanism in modern Europe. And here I'm going to offer a lengthy quote from a presentation I actually did some months ago entitled Lutheran Life and Death and part two of that series, which is still waiting to be finished. In this presentation, I presented the history of the rise of humanism in Germany from volume three of the history of the German people in the Middle Ages by Johannes Janssen. 
This discussion begins with Erasmus, one of the leading early humanists, who is a Catholic priest, but who was a fervent humanist inside of the Catholic Church and a promoter of all immorality. And Johannes Janssen had written, another way in which, in which Erasmus exercised a potent influence over the younger humanists was by the contempt which his teaching and his one-sided classical enthusiasm inspired for all medieval ecclesiastical learning. It has been said of him, and not without justice, that he brought the study of philosophy into disrepute, that he exalted rhetoric, wit, and elegance of style above serious scientific and speculative research, which is a pattern in American public life today. It is very easy, writes Winfling, to represent scholastic learning as sophistry and barbarism to young men who are enamored of the pagan poets. These young enthusiasts, and that's what Erasmus was doing, these young enthusiasts are only too glad to see contempt poured on studies which require hard work from them, and on the other hand, to hear praise bestowed on all that they find easy and entertaining. The humanist Jacob Locker, surnamed Philomusis, had already advocated the cult of the muses in place of the scholastic subjects. The sacred art of poetry, he said, should take precedence of all other studies. The scholiasts, with all their supposed learned labors, were mere theological jackanapes deserving the scorn and ridicule of all really cultivated people, meaning the poets. But from the poets, or, or those academics in Germany who advocated the works of the poets alone, above all others. But from the poets, the rising generation would get real culture. And this is the words of one of the leading humanists in Germany at the time, in the 16th century. But from the poets, the rising generation would get real culture. Even Ovid was an exceedingly chaste writer. And the sayings of Juvenal were on a par with evangelical truth. And that's the words of this humanist. But in reality, Ovid and Juvenal were perverts. They were perverts, disgusting perverts, devoid of any moral decency. They were the leading pornographers of classical Roman poetry. And Janssen continues by saying, with the second decade of the 16th century, complaints increased concerning the decay and depreciation of philosophic studies, the one-sided, exclusive attention to the classics, and the self-conceited arrogance as well as the immorality of the younger humanists. Philosophy, writes Johann Cochleus in the year 1512, is completely set aside. It is a great mistake for humanistic studies. However much they adorn real scholarship are hurtful in the extreme to those who have no foundation of sound erudition or scholastic learning. Hence the jejun or naive shallowness of a certain set of persons to whom the uninitiated have erroneously given the title of poets. Hence their buffoonery and lasciviousness they are base slaves of Bacchus and Venus, in other words, the gods of, of lasciviousness and licentiousness 
of sex and, and alcohol, not pious priests of Phoebus and Pallas. And Phoebus Apollo represents the arts, and Pallas Athena represented virginity. The poets, as the younger humanists were commonly called, worked themselves to such a pitch of enthusiasm for the classics that they could see no value whatever in anything that was not Latin or Greek. In language and thought, they repudiated their German origin. Their apostasy from the traditional spirit of the fatherland protruded itself so egregiously that they even became ashamed of their German names and manufactured new ones from the Latin or Greek vocabularies. And evidently, as I noted in, in my first presentation of this material, we have the influential Catholic priest Erasmus for thanking to thank for helping to foster that attitude. From this point on, from the time of Erasmus forward, the young humanists in Germany were adopting Greek and Latin names for themselves, and therefore it was difficult to tell who was who, who was actually German, and who were really Jews. Continuing with Johannes Janssen's description of the humanist poets from page 30, of volume three of the history of the German people in the Middle Ages, but as a crowning, but as crowning specimens of bad taste and utter worthlessness, we can commend those humanist poems which deal with Christian material, representing the divine creator as a ruler of high Olympus and as a thundering Zeus, turning sacred things, in short, into mere child's play. Jobanus Hesses, for instance, in the year 1514, published a volume of Christian heroines or love letters from Christian heroines to their lovers after the model of Ovid, Ovid the Roman pervert. Amongst these are letters from St. Mary of Magdalene to Christ, and even God the Father is made to exchange letters with the Virgin Mary. One cannot read this sort of thing without a shudder. Erasmus, however, declared himself delighted with the work and greeted the Obanus on the strength of it as the German Ovid, who alone could rescue Germany from barbarism. These poets displayed greater naturalness in severe, shameless imitations of the ancient erotic writers, in which Conrad Keltis had been their precursor and model. Keltis had far out-Ovided Ovid by his indecent descriptions and had claimed special merit on this score saying that he wished, by a naked presentation of reality, to warn and check the unbridled appetites of the young. Under the same shallow pretext, many of the humanists used to read the most profligate pagan poetry with their young pupils. So you think sex, sex education to children is new in the 20th century? It certainly is not new in the 20th century. 400 500 years ago, 500 years ago, this is an ages-old deception. 500 years ago, these pagan humanists were introducing sexual perversion to young children under the pretext of education. The next passage in Johannes Janssen's book opens with a letter to Erasmus lamenting this situation which we have just described, and it was written by, by Albert III of Pio. He was the Prince of Carthy. 
and he was the intellectual adversary of Erasmus. And Albert III, or, or Prince Carthy, who was a defender of the Roman Church and was a defender of more traditional, old-fashioned Catholic Christianity, disputed with Erasmus until his death in 1531. He disputed with Erasmus at the intellectual academic level. And the letter says, can you deny, and this is Prince Carthy writing of Erasmus, can you deny that the same state of things exists now in Germany as has so long prevailed with us in Italy, where the so-called fine arts are cultivated exclusively and with contempt for philosophy and theology. A melancholy mixture of Christian truth and pagan ideas is spread abroad. Love of controversy fills all minds, and social morality does not conform in any way to Christian doctrine. Well, Prince Coffey could have been describing the 1950s and 60s in America. In the 14th and 15th centuries, many of the Italian humanists had already assumed an attitude of indifference or skepticism towards the church and were no longer ruled by Christianity with its constant reference to a higher life. They filled the land with their lascivious writings and set examples of profligacy by their lives. With Greek learning, they had in most cases imbibed Greek vices, and they were followers of a shameless philosophy of pleasure-seeking, as Boccaccio has shown in his novels. And, of course, Paul of Tarsus had taught in Romans chapter 1 that a rejection of transcendentalism, that higher life, leads directly to a permissibility of immorality. So this lesson is as old as time. Johannes Janssen continues with Prince Coffey's letter, and this contagion was now spreading rapidly in Germany. Men like Locher, Hermann Vandenbusch, Ulrich von Hutten were in no way behind the Italians in immorality, and they pushed the disregard of Christian duties in their daily lives to the utmost excess. Swamp drinkers, the Germans, these German pagan humanists, the Germans indeed outdid the Italians. Not one of the later could have competed with an Eobanus Hesus, who thought nothing of emptying a bucket of ale at one drought. He was celebrated in song as the mighty topper. As for that melancholy mixture of Christian truth and in philosophy which Prince Carpi and other serious-minded Italians deplored, there was indeed ample evidence of its having taken root in Germany also. Witness the teachings of Conrad Mutianus Rufus and the circle of humanists of whom he was the leader. Among the North German universities, Erfurt, where Mutianus was a priest and a teacher, Erfurt had already been distinguished at an early period for its zeal in teaching the Greek and Latin classics and had received in this respect the most hearty support from the three leading religious professors whose, with whose labors the fame of the university in the last decades of the 15th century is principally connected. Jonicus Trutzeller of Eisenach and Bartholomew Arnold of Usingen, who were theologians, and Henning Goad, a professor of law, 
These three men, who later on at the outbreak of the religious war, suffered misfortunes and calumny of all sorts that are adhesion to the Catholic faith, were at the time that we write of on friendly terms with the chief leaders of the rising generation of humanists, Maternus Pistorius and Nicholas Marshak. So supposedly Christian academics had embraced and supported immoral humanists right from the birth of the humanist movement. But more importantly, we see that many of the prominent early humanists in Italy and in Germany had not only rejected Christianity, but they had rejected Christian morals, and they had celebrated the immorality of the basis of the pagan and Greek Romans, although certainly not all pagan and Greek Romans were immoral. Ovid and Juvenal certainly were extremely immoral. Humanism and neo-paganism are rooted in immorality. Their birth was given by immoral men, and they are destructive to white society, and they are destructive to the interests of all whites everywhere. Something else we had demonstrated throughout that series was that while Christians of the 16th century wanted to destroy the Jewish books and to run the Talmudic religion out of Europe, the pagans and the humanists were defending the Jews against the Christians. The pagans and the humanists of medieval Europe were fully in bed with the Jews. Today, secular humanists and pagans among white nationalists are still in bed with the Jews. They still do all the deeds of the Jews. They still do all the work of the Jews. The only difference between the humanists of the 16th century and the humanists of the 21st century is that the humanists of the 21st century are too stupid to know that they're in bed with the Jews while the humanists of the 16th century admitted it. It must also be noted, and it is quite important to note, that National Socialism properly recognized practical Christianity as the denial of one's own self to the benefit of his nation. But it did not entail national denial or the abrogation of the interest of one's own nation for the benefit of other nations. Positive Christianity has nationalism as a very important component. But liberalism and Marxism both insist that nations deny themselves. The denial of one's own nation and national identity is a necessary component in the Bolshevik agenda to destroy both race and nation. The Christian ideal of self-denial for the benefit of one's brethren should never be confused with the Marxist intent to destroy the races and the nations. Adolf Hitler said in Volume 1, in Chapter 4 of Mein Kampf, a time will come, even though in the distant future, when there can only be two alternatives. Either the world will be ruled according to our modern concept of democracy, and then every decision will be in favor 
of the numerically stronger races, meaning those with the most votes, and, and votes in, in our case, the niggers, the spicks, the chinks, or the world will be governed by the law of natural distribution of power, and then those nations will be victorious, who are of more brutal will and are not, here's the important part, are not the nations who have practiced self-denial, which is sound in Marxism, not in Christianity. Nobody can doubt that this world will one day be the scene of dreadful struggles for existence on the part of mankind. In the end, the instinct of self-preservation alone will triumph. Before its consuming fire, this so-called humanitarianism, which is what Hitler called egalitarianism, his word for it was humanitarianism, this so-called humanitarianism, which connotes only a mixture of fatuous timidity and self-conceit, will melt away as under the March sunshine. Man has become great through perpetual struggle. In perpetual peace, his greatness must decline. In other words, Hitler saw that in the national self-denial of liberalism, the Aryan race would disappear. But in a brutal will to survive, the Aryan race would survive. National self-denial was a forfeiture of a national will to survive in which the other races would always have the advantage. Hitler saw that in practical Christianity, where a man sacrificed himself for the benefit of his nation, the race would in that manner remain strong and remain able to survive. That Hitler despised racial egalitarianism, which he called humanitarianism, is evident in chapter 11, in volume one of Mein Kampf, where he said that whoever ignores or despises the laws of race really deprives himself of the happiness to which he believes he can attain, for he places an obstacle in the victorious path of the superior race, and by doing so, he interferes with a prerequisite condition of all human progress, loaded with the burden of humanitarianism, I'm sorry, loaded with the burden of humanitarian sentiment, he falls back to the level of those who are unable to raise themselves in a scale of being. It would be futile to attempt to discuss the question as to what race or races were the original standard bearers of human culture and were thereby the real founders of all that we understand by the word humanity. It is much simpler and Hitler is, is admitting that he doesn't know much of ancient history. However, we can assure Adolf Hitler that all of those original cultures were indeed white. But Hitler says, it is much simpler to deal with this question insofar as it relates to the present time. Here the answer is simple and clear. Every manifestation of human culture, every product of art, science, and technical skill which we see before our eyes today is almost exclusively the product of the Aryan creative power. This very fact fully justifies the conclusion that it was the Aryan alone who founded a superior type of humanity. Therefore, he represents the archetype of what we understand by the term man.
And we, identity Christians, could assure Adolf Hitler that the Christian Bible, once the identification of the Adamic race and those Genesis 10 table of nations are understood, the Christian Bible teaches the same thing. The Christian Bible teaches the exact same thing that Adolf Hitler knew in his heart to be true. The other races in the Christian Bible are not man. Only the Adamic race is man. The other races aren't even people. Now we shall commence with point two of this section of Fabricius's explanation of National Socialist Love for One's Neighbor, which is titled, Help in Word and Deed. Thus is love for one's neighbor, in its full extent, common to both Christianity and National Socialism. This also applies to the method by which brotherly love is realized in order to promote peace inwardly amongst men and externally to further their welfare by alleviating distress. After the first impression, it is true, there would appear to be a wide gulf between Christians and National Socialists in the method of loving one's neighbor. Generally speaking, we are wont to find Christian love working very quietly with tenderness and the use of spiritual means. National Socialism, on the other hand, has been most vigorous in order to reconstruct the unity of the nation. And let me say that New Testament Christianity is difficult to quantify in this aspect because the events of the New Testament had all taken place among whites of related nations, which were Greeks, Romans, and Judeans. And yes, Judeans were originally whites who were related to both Greeks and Romans, as ancient classical history and Paul's own letters attest in Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. However, in the New Testament and in ancient history, the common enemy in any event was the Edomite Canaanite Jew, who were a race of infiltrators in ancient Judea and who today bear the name of Jews something which is evident throughout the New Testament. These Jews of today, however, were not the tribe of Judah of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is certainly a Christian book and not a Jewish book, as we have established in many other places. The understanding of true Christianity is covenant theology in which we have an assurance that the Christian message is only for the Adamic man, or the Aryan race, found in the nations formerly known as Christendom, the white nations of Europe. It is the ages-old objective of the Jew to destroy this message, because in it is found the death knell for all Jews. The Bible says they're going to get a holocaust. When whites cooperate with a spirit of Christian morality, for the benefit of other whites of their own communities, the Jew finds it impossible to function within those communities. The Jew is driven out completely. 
Fabricius continues by saying, where necessary, it, meaning National Socialism, it used its fists against communism in the streets. After the party came into power, strict laws forbade the continuance of all political parties that had formerly caused disruption and hatred in the people. This, however, is only an apparent contrast to the usual Christian method. Even Christian love must, where necessary, employ vigorous methods when it comes into contact with dissolute elements and criminals and must need make the use of severe discipline as soon as gentler methods fail. National Socialism found itself in the same position when attempting to help the German people. It was confronted with the most appalling degradation and dissolution and had perforce to resort to very strong measures in order to snatch the whole of the great nation from the very brink of an abyss and set about constructing its internal peace. But at the same time, National Socialism applied more gentle and more spiritual methods to win compatriots for the new community of the folk in stimulating speeches and writings. Indeed, it might be said by political preaching on a large scale, the Fuhrer was able in the early days of his campaign to win German hearts for the future comradeship, and his influence was of that deep and spiritual nature only possible in a Christian sermon on brotherly love. Then, too, on the assumption of power, when it meant shouldering responsibility for the whole nation, the same noble means were employed to alleviate the distress that prevailed everywhere, with a care only to be found in Christian philanthropy. Ways and means have been found to relieve the want and suffering of all the poor and needy. A gigantic program of methods for creating employment was drawn up, and already millions had been rescued from the misery of unemployment. And even more has been accomplished, particularly in winter, when provision is made for all those suffering from hunger and from cold, and in a manner conforming absolutely to Christian methods. National Socialism has continued the work begun before its assumption of power by the Christian churches, in conjunction with secular societies, but with far greater success than could possibly have been achieved by anyone in the years of internal discord in the nation, meaning the Weimar period. The method employed in this work of relief is, as the Fuhrer has expressly put it, that of voluntary giving. This corresponds to the ancient and well-tried custom of appealing for contributions and of receiving ready offerings. The National Socialist German economic policy relied heavily on two principles by which the nation was lifted from the ruins of Versailles and from the decadence of the Weimar period. They are the abolition of state-sponsored usury, and a volunteerism of the people in participation in the welfare and employment programs. And I'm going to quote a work which is absolutely hostile to National Socialism, but where some truthful aspects of this feature 
of the German economy under Hitler are presented, which agree with what Fabricius has said here, but in this they are presented in very condescending language. And this is from a book called World Fascism, a Historical Encyclopedia, Volume 1, by some kind of, I don't know, pro-Jewish Marxist named Cyprian Blamiers. And this is from page 721. And Blamiers or Blamiers or whatever his name is, says that over the last century, fascist and far-right political movements have had a paradoxical and slightly confused attitude towards welfare. And that's the first lie, but there are many others. On the one hand, they have vehemently opposed the social welfare state. And of course they did. And Adolf Hitler openly in Mein Kampf opposed welfare in the form of simple handouts to worthless, lazy people. And then he goes on to say that in Germany, for example, the Weimar system of state welfare was criticized for being too bureaucratic, arbitrary, and overambitious. On the other hand, fascists and neo-fascists have glorified their own brand of welfare. In one of its early manifestos, the Nazi party stated, we demand an expansion on a large scale of old age welfare. And that is true. In power, Hitler created a state infrastructure that blended charity, volunteerism, and massive Nazi party involvement. It was about the individual submitting to the good health of the collective. And, and you know, those last two sentences are perfectly true but he also wrote them in a very condescending tone. The Christian aspect of all of that is also entirely missed by this biased author, who's evidently a propagandist. And he goes on to say, significant organizations emerged, including People's Welfare, founded in 1935, and Winterhill, which he says mimicked the Weimar creation of 1931, and that's not entirely true. Welfare organizations took on significant, a significant Nazi complexion and performed a major role in the Nazi welfare state. The German Red Cross was thoroughly Nazified and was controlled by leading SS doctors, as if that's a bad thing. I'd rather have SS doctors work on me than squat monsters and trained monkeys that, that Americans use as doctors today. He goes on to say, the Protestant Ineri mission and some Catholic welfare experts condoned sterilization. And, and, and that might be true, but it's really immaterial because eugenicists in America and in Britain, Woodrow Wilson, Margaret Sanger, they also condoned sterilization. In fact, Planned Parenthood and, and our entire system of abortion clinics here in the United States are basically sterilization after the fact. And he goes on to say, the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization came to play a major role in organizing the voluntary sector. So even this writer, who hates Adolf Hitler, who hates National Socialism, even he says 
that the economy in National Socialist Germany was built on volunteerism and charity. And it was about the individual submitting to the good health of the nation, which he calls a collective, disparagingly. Even through the vehement anti-national socialist propaganda of this writer, the Christian nature of national socialism is fully evident. There is no greater anathema to the Jews because the Jews would rather promote unworkable solutions to poverty that bind states in debt and enslave the entire population of nations to that debt. And this is exactly what has happened in America under the so-called Great Society welfare programs. Rather than putting niggers to work, they have permanently enslaved whites under massive federal debt. And here, Caius Fabricius states very much that same thing in quite a different manner. He says, totally opposed to this Christian and national socialistic method of proferring relief is Marxism, both in theory and practice. It directs men to start with their own interests and claim privileges from the community. My great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy was a slave, so you owe me. That's Marxist. That's a Marxist attitude. It indignantly rejects all giving and receiving as something derogatory, both to the giver and recipient. In other words, Marxism rejected Christian charity as being derogatory, but it supported the idea of state charity, which, is, which perpetuates state debt to the Jew bankers. The Marxian idea of people's welfare corresponds more or less to the institutions of today. And this is Fabricius speaking, not me, but it's true here in America as well. Taxation and state insurance. These institutions, which we too make use of, are doubtless most important factors, placing as they do people's welfare on an assured material basis. Since, however, their functions are merely mechanical and purely financial, both Christianity and National Socialism do not consider them the sole means or noblest form of eradicating social evils, but give them a secondary place. The voluntary surrender of the personality to the whole and the unselfish sharing of one's own possessions with the needy are for us today, as in the past, the noblest form of showing love for one's neighbor. And these national socialist attitudes are entirely Christian principles. As the Apostle James says, what good does it do to you if you tell your brother to go out and, and be happy and be fed and be clothed if your brother is needy and you don't provide him the food and the clothing. Faith without works is dead. These things were put into practice in Hitler's Germany at a level which was never before achieved in world history. They may have been among the ideals of states founded beforehand, such as some of the individual states of the American Republic, 
But Hitler's Germany actually institutionalized these Christian precepts into its laws and the function of its government agencies. Thank you for listening. We will return next week with point three of this section of Fabricius's discussion of national socialist love for one's neighbor, which is titled Family, Nation, Mankind. And because Fabricius is a universalist who is relatively blind to the nationalist profession of Christianity, we want to explain properly how our Christian identity viewpoint is agreeable to Adolf Hitler's Wolfenstein, whereas Fabricius himself, being a universalist Catholic, falls short of our own Christian ideals. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, Mark Downey. Good night.